Welcome to another episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack, when the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. We've got a really special episode for you this week. Two movies, two soundtracks, guest hosts, Joe Valisi. Stay tuned. Enjoy. I'm Joshua Weber. And I'm Matt Lombardi. And I'm Heather Samples. We didn't make the rules. Police are always on track. If they watch Palm Night, they save time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. How are we, how we going to start this? It's a different kind, so I'm yeah. wondering how to start here. Okay. It's a scream, baby. That's what you got to say. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> this week's a scream. A double scream. We are doing a bit of a different episode this week. We are talking about two movies and two soundtracks, and we are doing it in collaboration with our guest, Joe Valisi. He has an anthology that is coming out that I'm going to have him talk about here in a minute because he will be much better <laughs> at it than I will. But Maybe. I will say, look at this gorgeous oh, book. Cool cover. It is Loving really it. nice. I'm so glad you have it the design is so great like even if you didn't want to read this book which i don't know why you wouldn't want to read this book um (laughs) you would want it just sitting on your coffee table it's called it came from the closet queer reflections on horror and so i was talking to joe about having him on so we could talk about the book and talk about movies he's a big horror fan we were brainstorming about what soundtracks to do and the horror genre does not have a lot of big soundtracks it's mostly scores and you know we're not doing that here so he recommended scream he said uh scream has a pretty interesting soundtrack and then as we talked more he said but what's what's even more interesting is the way the soundtrack kind of gets beefed up for scream 2 we're going to take a deep dive into all that later in the episode but is there more to why you picked scream than this joe did i did i miss anything no it just popped into my head most immediately i think a lot of those 90s horror movies had pretty like substantial pop rock soundtracks of the moment especially the 90s and the early But Scream, I think, you know, given that it's the highest grossing of those kinds of films and it has sort of the healthiest franchise in terms of quality and mostly box office success over Mm. the years, um, there is no more consistent slasher film franchise. As much as I love my Freddy Kruegers and my (laughs) Jason Voorhees and my... Michael Myers, like they're all a mess, you know, uh, and, and, and scream and scream isn't like that. You know, scream follows the same story, the same universe. Each film varies a little bit in tone and, you know, depending on how you like your scream, you can think that the motives are amazing or they're off the rocker or cheesy or whatever. Um, and it sort of revitalized the, uh, the, killer giving a grand monologue at the end explaining exactly why they did it which is Mm -hmm. always absurd but really satisfying and um yeah just so many you know i i I get transported to 96 and 97 um musically when i think of these movies as well and also because wes craven was actually quite good for an old dude at uh making sure that they inserted music very strategically uh and it really underlines scenes and adds context and you know we'll get more into it but um i just think that the use of pop music um is done in a really effective way in the Scream series. So for me, it was a no-brainer. I could talk about Scream you know, for hours, and <laughs> I hadn't really revisited the soundtracks myself in a really long time. So, um, And also, I feel like I owe Scream some 
conversation because I only got one submission for Scream essay in the book and I rejected it for a few reasons. Oh, so, was, no. so, there's a, so there's actually no Scream essay in the book. I mean, the, I was actually wondering why about yeah, that because well, I, mean, I noticed that. Yeah. There was a good essay that was submitted to me, but it was previously published and we had to really, really minimize um, anything that was previously published. So there's 25 essays in the book and four are previously published and the rest are all brand new. Okay, well, tell tell so, us about the book. Yeah, tell yeah. Um, the book is called It Came From The Closet, Queer Reflections on Horror. It's being uh, released through Feminist Press and it's a book that I always wanted to read as someone, you know, I've always known I was gay. I've always known I loved horror movies. I was allowed to talk about one over the other much earlier in life. Um, and I knew that there was still a relationship between like my inherent lust for horror, um, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and queerness. But there was a point in my life where I thought that the the relationship was kind of incongruous and didn't make sense and that I would have to sort of give it up because I kind of uh, put it in a bucket of like faux machismo, the thing that I did with my dad and my brothers. I didn't like sports, but I loved horror movies. And so I could sort of fit into cis, you know, cis hetero norms when I watched horror. And then it wasn't until I got older and I realized I didn't have to give it up and that there was a real subculture um, in the queer community that loves horror. And it's kind of having the moment of all moments, uh, over these past few years. And so I wanted to read this book. This book shockingly didn't exist. I waited around a while to see if it would exist. And then when it became clear that it didn't, I said, I got to be a good gay Virgo. I got to do it myself. It's the, only, it's, the only, it's the only way it's going to happen. It's, you know, I say in the introduction, it's, it's the book of my cinephilic dreams. It's exactly what I want to read. I want to read people talking about their personal connections and stories uh, connecting their identity as queer people to the horror film uh, genre, which so often excludes us and can be quite cruel mm -hmm. to the queer community. Mm -hmm. And yet we find um, some solace and some comfort and camaraderie in it. So I really wanted to examine what that's all about. And there was not going to be one answer. So there couldn't just be one voice. It couldn't just be a book written by me. It had to be an anthology. It mm -hmm. had to be in its way, like a soundtrack. It had to have multiple mm -hmm. voices on it. Um, so we could tell a collective story. So I think about it as a collective queer horror memoir in some ways, because uh, we go, you know, parenthood is in there you know, uh, trauma, art, love, sex, um, you know, you name it. And it's in there in these 25 essays. So that's my sort of longish elevator pitch. I guess it's an elevator pitch. If we go up to like the 40th floor, right? <laughs> it's, uh, you really brought it in though, with the soundtrack comparison, the anthology yeah. soundtrack thing. I have not read the whole thing yet, but I've read a little <laughs> bit of it and it is great. The writing is so good. Um, one of the things I will say about Joe, not only that he's a great guy and a good friend and all this stuff, he's a great writer his essay is incredible i read it yesterday oh, and i i must have cried 10 times 15 times oh. i would think about reading an excerpt of it now wow. but it might be embarrassing for joe and it might be embarrassing for me because i might start crying it is beautiful <laughs> it's really really beautiful and just and i just want to give you to, just wow. to give you a sense of like what kind of stuff this book is doing like his his essay pairs the movie Grace, which is a woman whose child has been born, stillborn, and she kind of wishes the baby or begs the baby to come back to life. And the baby um, lives off of blood. And so the baby is like eating her to, to stay alive. And, and she's okay with that. And he couples that movie with his experience of 
um, trying to have a child through surrogacy and 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 losing children yeah. and the body horror of of that experience, the the real you know blood of it, you know, visceral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's and it's it is. Yeah. Good news, there's a happy ending because Joe is a proud father, but <laughs> and, and he tells you that early in the essay, and thank God, because it might be impossible to read it otherwise. It is so beautiful and also just so painful. Um, anyway, uh, the book's such a cool idea. Get it, read it. We'll uh, post links to it and all that sort of thing. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. Y'all want to talk about Scream? Yeah. 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 Let's do it. You'll see him in your nightmares. You'll see him in your dreams. Out of nowhere, but he ain't what he seems. You'll see him in your head on the TV screen. Hey, buddy, I'm wanting you to turn it on. Scream is one of those movies that that I think we can kind of assume that everybody sort of knows what's going on. It's a slasher movie. Comes out in Christmas time of 1996, which was considered to be a a weird choice. They're like, this is a terrible idea. You don't release a horror movie at Christmas time. That's when you release family movies. Mm -hmm. They go for it. It has a fairly unremarkable opening weekend. It finishes second to uh, Beavis and Butthead Do America. (laughs) But it immediately picks up. It does bigger business the next weekend and the next and the next and it stays in the theaters for eight months wow and it's worth noting that before scream came out the horror genre was as far as like being a a a a hollywood blockbuster thing was pretty dead i mean though the genre had run all the tropes had been run into the ground people were tired of it you know we we, you had your your main guys freddie and jason michael myers you got michael myers yeah but they're you know they're jokes at this point basically like if you're watching the movies like that you know it's like it's run out of jason takes manhattan Yes, right. I, they're yeah. just like running out of ideas. They're on number forty-seven. Yep. Yeah. Right. So Scream comes out with with people having no expectations that a horror movie is going to be any good. I mean, and it's it's pretty impressive how quickly it felt like it just revitalized yes, yes. the genre within the next couple of years. I mean, I haven't done the timeline on this, but you've got H two O comes out shortly after this, the, the Halloween reboot, right? Um, the remake of Psycho. Like suddenly, like horror is like a cool thing again. And then at the same time, it positioned what we're like. I feel like people kind of just like rolled their eyes at horror movies, but the way it talked about them, it all of a sudden felt like they were now elevated to like film history suddenly for me. When you think of like, you know, a movie like Halloween, it had spun off so many, you know, sequels and whatever. It positioned it in a way where you kind of started respecting the original franchises and the director. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, that's important that links to this was that I feel like Scream was the first horror movie in a long time that got good reviews. Right. Like the horror genre, now it's pretty routine to see good reviews and high Rotten Tomato scores for horror movies. But, you know, the 90s, the yeah, 80s, that's a good point. every horror movie was just assumed a piece of shit unless told yeah. otherwise. And critics fed into that too. It was not a genre to be taken seriously. And I think Scream did that, right? Scream was like, oh, wait a second. Yeah. You can actually make a self-referential film. And it's a good film and it's doing something new and now it's okay to praise it as such right now you can give these accolades to this genre um that was just being deprived of, and it fed the critics what they love is all those references it's such a 90s move like matt has mentioned before his theory that the 90s had this like faux literary uh 
sort of fetish about them. Yeah. And and I think that, that <laughs> no. that's like happening in this movie. It's totally. it's, a, it's a very clear and mm-hmm. present example of this this very 90s phenomenon of uh we're going to we're going to make it a little smarter mm-hmm. and see what happens. The characters know yeah. about the thing that is in the film as opposed to the characters are disembodied from reality and they're in the genre but have no knowledge of it and that's and the yeah. dialogue itself is overwritten on purpose in this tongue-in-cheek way where mm-hmm. they, totally. they they speak in these like little tiny diatribes or these kind of really um uh didactic ways but it's fun because it's winking at you and you're you're get if you're in on the joke so i can see how critics were like "Ooh, a horror movie that made me feel smart a plus yeah i mean that's a great thing to say because to me, Scream feels like the logical next step after Clueless. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like Clueless is the comedy that that does that work, and then Scream feels like the horror movie that's doing that work. There's like a relationship between them that I see a conversation between those two films. Definitely have to do that soundtrack too at some point. That's a classic. Yeah, that, that's a good. I get that request yeah, yeah. a lot. Yeah, me too. To stick with the overview yeah. here, it it's a it's a huge success, as we all know. And it's such a big success that they immediately, immediately greenlight screen two. I'm blown away to 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 discover. I mean, I saw these both in the theater, so I should remember this, but I don't really remember this. Scream two came out less than a year, like mm-hmm. almost a year to the day. One year later. Yeah, less, like just yeah. less than a year. That's incredible. Yeah. Like they mm-hmm. went to work on it. There are TV shows that we have to wait longer for the next. Season. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> Radiohead spends like seven years on a record. <laughs> <laughs> Scream Two comes out, and the anticipation for it is so big. People are now so ready for this thing that the James Bond movie Tomorrow Never Dies and the James Cameron movie Titanic were the their release dates were pushed back so as not to compete with the opening weekend of Scream Two. Oh wow, I never I mean, knew that. That's cool. Isn't that I crazy? Didn't know that. That's cool. Titanic moving abilities. Mm-hmm. That's really funny. Titanic. James Cameron. Cameron's like, well, we don't want to mess with Scream 2. <laughs> wow, what a It's probably the first time in Cameron's entire life and career when he had any humility. That you could be. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it too yeah. is a big hit. Another huge hit. And I definitely want to talk about the movies in comparison with each other. And I want to think about those things. But we should probably say a little something about the music. We're going to do these soundtracks one at a time. Part of what's interesting about these soundtracks is that the first one is kind of unremarkable as just a soundtrack on its own in the sense that it wasn't it wasn't a big success it doesn't have really big names there's a couple people's names you would know nick cave uh, has a big song on here which joe's going to talk about a little bit later moby has a song on here a lot of these bands wait 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 okay don't forget julie cruz Uh, julie cruz You're naming some. I know. Some yes, and uh, and who is Julie Cruz? Because a lot of people don't know who that is. R.I.P. Yeah, she just died. Yeah. Julie Julie Cruz is the no. beautiful ethereal mm-hmm. singer that you associate with Twin Peaks. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's all that, that'll tell people. Legendary uh soundtrack moment right there, of course. The Twin Peaks. Oh my song. god, so good. A lot of the people on the soundtrack are from the label that put out the soundtrack, TVT. TVT is a record label that I've sort of seen forever um listed on things because they had lots of uh big groups. But they're an indie label, right? Well, I mean, I, I don't really know where those lines are in terms of like, you know, what makes something an indie or whatnot, but it definitely is a one-person label that was started by one guy. And an indie label. Looking into that story <laughs> is pretty interesting. But, I mean, I, I knew them because of, like, Nine Inch Nails, their names on there. Um, Underworld ends up on uh, TVT. Ja Rule, the KLF. Mm. Just these, these different random kind of groups. But anyway, here's what's interesting about TVT Records. TVT is founded by this guy, Steve Gottlieb, in the 70s. TVT stands for TV Tunes, like, as in television. <laughs> TV tunes because his first release is television's greatest hits. Not the band television. Wow. It is a collection of TV theme songs pressed to vinyl. So it's like 65 TV theme songs pressed to vinyl and it's big success like dude makes money on this i mean i'd buy it the san francisco chronicle called it the most fun you can have with your pants on and the new york Whoa. times highlighted it wow. as one of the 1985's most notable business ideas so it was like you notable know, um, business ideas business ideas yeah because i think it's like you know a pet rock or something like it's like one of those uh-huh. things where it's like oh that's a fun idea good uh-huh. one wow i wish my book got that blurred that sounds great <laughs> as much fun as you can and, have with your pants on that one and the business idea. and this is what i don't understand somehow he gets that money and he talks uh and he signs nine inch nails so somehow the dude from tv tone tv tunes records goes to trent reznor's house and is like hey buddy do you like television (laughs) greatest hits well tells you something about trent i don't know they they don't their, their relationship does not last long basically one album and an ep before uh trent heads for the hills but it's enough that the label is rich at that point. And so, you know, they, they, they're around for 20 years, uh, put out a bunch of albums. And one of the albums they put out is the first Scream soundtrack, which again, was not a big hit. And the music in the movie is a lot of it, at least my experience of it was, was a lot of it wasn't that noticeable. Like there's yeah. not a lot of it that's featured. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is like kind of blends into scenes. And then there's some that are used in kind of obvious ways, mm-hmm. like uh, School's Out, Alice Cooper's song. We might not come back at all. School's out completely. Anyone want to guess where that's used, right? Like, schools out. out, Yeah. I wonder how many times that has been used in that scene. Oh my god! I wish we. I bet there's like. I bet it's at least twenty. Oh, Oh, I bet it's it's, yeah. Maybe someone on the internet look for it. Are there other songs on here or other moments of this soundtrack that that seem noteworthy to you? Anyone? No, but I mean, for me. I think I had mentioned this to you guys. It was one song that was noteworthy enough that I went out and bought the soundtrack because I wanted to hear the Nick Cave song again. We're definitely going to talk about that. We're going to get to that. Joe's going to Joe's going to talk about that one. So it's, it's one of the soundtracks I actually bought after seeing the movie because that song stuck out. But you're right. The rest of them. And I remember I got the soundtrack and 
I didn't really listen to it that much, except that song and maybe a few others. It was yeah. your Titanic. <laughs> it was my Titanic. <laughs> the, the video for Drop Dead Gorgeous was on MTV nonstop before the film came out. I remember that yeah. pretty distinctly. But I, but then I couldn't, you know, like I was, I couldn't recall until I watched it again where in the film it even was. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of this is just, you know, end credit stuff and little pieces. I always, um, I can hear the Moby song and I can see the ending with the sun rising over the house at the end. So that stands out to me. Um, I know that Heather's going to talk about the cover of Don't Fear the Reaper, which I <laughs> love the way it's used in the film. But yeah, it, it definitely underscores scenes and yeah. uh, punctuates things. But I'm with you. It's a pretty uh, pretty subtle, low-key soundtrack. It definitely highlights what a what a low-budget movie this was, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, like it, it shows you, yeah, this is, an, this is a small-budget movie totally. that, you know, that a lot of people did not have a lot of expectations for. It's got a, you know, an indie label. It's got um, a bunch of artists from that label. And then the songs that are sort of well-known songs are done as covers. And one of those that I, I think is used really interestingly because in hindsight, it seems completely obvious that it would be in this, but it's not completely <laughs> obvious. It's really fun. And that's one Heather's going to tell us yeah. about. Romeo and Juliet are together in eternity. Forty thousand men and women every day. Another forty thousand every day. So come on, baby, take my hand. Ah, uh, you guys, I am not going to bury this lead. The, the Gus Black cover of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper is absolute garbage. Wow, coming in hot. It is coming in such hot. a terrible cover of such a fantastic song. It's so funny. And we're going to learn more about how that came to be. But but first, uh, just just because I, I want you to be on, I want you to like read this thesis generously and, and like be on board for a second. So uh, Joshua, if you could um, uh, play play that link of, of the mm-hmm. original. I've got some timestamps for you there. Mm. Cue, the, cue that up. This is the this is the extended solo that sort of forms like act okay. two of this song. Oh yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's so dynamic. It's so interesting. There are like all of these uh, <laughs> competing sounds happening at the same time. Yes. love this song so much. This is like the best song on any <laughs> Halloween party playlist. <laughs> the primary
primary parts of this song were actually recorded in a single take. Wow. But so much time was spent on editing yeah. the solo and deciding how much and how long um, that that the it wasn't like they like were able to record the song and and print it as quickly as you might expect when the rest of it was literally done in a single take. It's just so good. Yeah, yeah. The way it kicks back in there is really nice. It's, it's. Yeah, amazing. And their voices are prettier than you would expect for kind of how hard. Yes, there's pretty. Yes, totally. There's prettiness in the song. There's movement. There's, there's. Um, I mean, like the (laughs) lyrics are just beautiful um the sound of the the vocals is amazing okay so that's 1976's blue oyster call hold that in your mind as the fucking north star version and then we come in with gus black who again i promise we'll return to one gus black who yeah who is gus black who who the fuck is gus black is a good question but let's just hear what he does with this song All right. It sounds like it's going to take a while for it to start. <laughs> oh, they're doing that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, Heather, when I heard this, I was like, it's like when you see a friend at a coffee shop cover a song. Seasons <laughs> It's no Bruce Willis covering Lust for Life for the Rugrats soundtrack, I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly isn't. We could listen to all five minutes of this and nothing would change. That's how fast it goes the whole whole time, huh? Wow. That's what the whole track sounds like. So... It's really... Yeah, it's it's almost unfair, though, (laughs) because I just have to say the Blue Oyster Court from 1976 is like the epitome of perfect mid 70s rock it really it's just like really everything is. you want out of it in one and then i guess thing. he's like maybe i can do an acoustic thing sorry i'll let you go though but i just have to it's say so that. it's so bad so okay so this you know joshua was saying just a second ago that scream is actually like yeah, a pretty yeah. low budget movie um this is evidence of that low budget. Like, you know, pour one out for every music supervisor whose executive producer gives her a budget that is totally unfeasible. <laughs> I do not blame them. They have to make these moves sometimes. But my God, maybe she should have picked someone better than Gus Black. Yeah. Poor Gus. I'm, I'm starting to feel bad for Gus. Gus <laughs> Wikipedia page has issues because it is so clear that the man wrote it. All right. Now I don't like him. All right. Oh, I'm back. Yeah. He's he's basically like the, the worst uh-huh. of L.A. He's like one of these people who's like wow. done a little bit of stuff for a commercial here. And he like, go, you know, he does gets roped into doing a, a thing there. And he's got a little gig here. But mostly he's just like a commercial artist. Although... <sighs> And this is so telling. iTunes names him like one of the best indie singer-songwriters of 2006. Uh, who, wait, who named him this? Uh-huh. Like, so picture that, 2006. Wow. Yeah, I was like, going to say... This is a this is the kind of this is a this is the same moment when we're getting like Jose Gonzalez. The world is I was like swimming in these singer songwriter people in Brooklyn going to these shows, the freak folk movement, uh-huh. everything, and then iTunes names this dude. Yep. That's so funny. Yes, yes. Oh, the Starbucks man. compilation yeah. album. Right? <laughs> 
hundred percent. Yes. Yes. It's the yeah. same time that like Jose Gonzalez is like putting out a song on the Sony Bravia ad and everybody's yeah. like, whoa, that song really slaps. <laughs> Joanna Newsom. And this, yeah, this is yeah. Gus Black. He's just, he's yeah, just yeah. like a guy in LA who like makes movies, wow. you know, makes a song here, a track there for a commercial or a TV show. And he somehow ends up on this song, on this soundtrack because they can't afford Blue Oyster Cult, which is fine. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can't afford Blue Oyster Cult, but you definitely could have avoided <laughs> this version, which is just so bad. So yeah, but you bad. also you also discovered the 2006 <laughs> iTunes greatest folk vocalist. That's what Scream did for us. <laughs> I did. That's true. That's true, Matt. I you are joking, but that I am not. Crazy. Like I I was like, okay, all right, Gus, I'm gonna see. What what else you got here? I encourage all of you to like if you want to give yourself five minutes of fun, look up Gus Black on your music platform of choice and check it out, and you will find that, like I said, it is like the worst of what mm. LA does to the culture. It's like I love LA. I think there are amazing things about LA. There's also this strain of LA person yeah. who's like yeah. barely kind of getting by, but getting by enough because they're just doing the thing, playing the playing the game cash in the checks and that's gus black someone's gonna tag this poor guy when yeah, we this I, I am definitely not putting his name in the uh search term i am sure that this is the first time i have ever chosen a song for the express purpose of being like i want you to ignore the cover entirely i want you yeah. to use this as a reminder that the original exists because i'm not that guy right like i don't i don't believe that the, the first is the best in this case the first is so good, and the cover is unlistenable. But this is your reminder for your Halloween party playlist. Yeah. Make sure you have Blue Oyster Cults, Don't Fear the Reaper on probably at least twice. I guarantee you there's people who make that mistake, and uh, you know because you know people just go and they, they look up a song title, and then they, they throw sure. it on the playlist, and I guarantee you there's and somebody out there who's like, this Halloween is going to have like this song come on, and everybody kind of look at each other and go like, whoa, that is, 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 why is it playing so slow? I, I think that's really true, especially for younger people who don't have Blue Oyster Cult right. burned in their minds <laughs> as the performers and, and writers of that song. Okay, I'm going to conclude with one mm. quick pop quiz. Uh, do you know which iconic horror movie the original Don't Fear the Reaper appears oh, on the soundtrack? Oh, great question. question. Oh, I feel... Is, do, you have, do we have, do you have, do we have <laughs> options? Give us some multiple choice. Oh, I don't. I don't have a multiple choice, but I can make you a multiple choice. Um, okay, A, uh, the second Nightmare okay. on Elm Street. B, <laughs> the People Under the okay. Stairs. C, Titanic. <laughs> Titanic. Did you just say Titanic? <laughs> That's what they were playing on the violin as the ship was uh, sinking. Don't fear the Reaper. <laughs> <laughs> or, when they're floating on the door in the ocean. Or C. Uh, the original uh, Halloween. I don't remember. You know, that's weird because I've seen the original Halloween a mm-hmm. bunch of times and I, for some reason I don't remember it, but I'm still going to say the original Halloween. It has to be. It's the original Halloween. It is. It is the original Halloween. It plays when Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. is, is... And it plays like as the soundtrack. Hours. It's not like on, on her radio or something. Oh, I don't remember if it's diegetic in the movie. I would have to look back at the scene. It's when there's... They're, they're, well, they're sitting... Um, I think they're smoking weed in the car was when it plays, if I remember correctly. Uh, so it was like on the radio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so it is Okay, diet. that makes okay. sense. Yeah. Wait, did they have the money for that? Because that's a famously low-budget movie, right? Yeah, um, that's right. Well, I think, man, it's possible it, it wasn't worth it. Oh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think movies were... People weren't charging as much, for sure. I, I mean... 
may I just say, um, I'm with you and I, and I got a kick out of this. Um, the reason why I believe it exists in the film as is, um, I think money reasons, yes, but I think that, um, one, because Kevin Williamson who wrote scream was writing it as an homage to Halloween. And I think it meant Mm. something to him to have the song in it. And I think it's also important that quite that the lyrics are playing softly under this cutesy scene Uh, between Sydney and Billy in the beginning when he sneaks into her room and it's like, yeah, girl, fear that Reaper. He's literally the Reaper. He's wearing the ghost face costume. <laughs> he is the killer. And I think it's actually quite clever to have that in there. Um, and also because it's that whole, you know, Kevin Williamson would go on to do that Dawson's <laughs> Creek thing, right? So this 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 probably plays in a Dawson's yeah, Creek yeah. episode somewhere, right? Like it's, it probably makes its comeback there. And I think that it's you're right it's a horrible cover Mm -hmm. but it fits so seamlessly into that Mm -hmm. really particular texture and tone of this movie at that time by this writer and that atmosphere that gets created by it um so i'm I'm with you i love i love this addition to it your your um your ability to see that there is something soft and also dangerous in that softness about the cover is, I I, I buy it. So, okay, everybody, love the scene, hate, hate the track. We can do that. That's, that's on, that's on the menu of possibilities. (laughs) Totally. I mean, it's exploiting the original song for the purpose of that scene to be clever, right? And most Mm -hmm. people will breeze right by it anyway, but those who don't and actually take the time with it, well, oh, that's kind of cool. Even though I'm 100% with you that obviously it's a complete bastardization. Yeah. It wasn't like I hated it, it in the movie. Happened. I mean, when we ju- I just rewatched it and, it and I didn't stop and go, God, this, this cover is terrible. And it's not a bad idea <laughs> right. in a, the you know, postmodern horror movie to put an acoustic version of the song. It's too, shor- it's too short in the movie. I actually, after, after listening to the cover so many times that I this week, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back and watch the scene a few times. Why didn't I notice how terrible yeah. it is? Like, you, if you listen to the song, you really are being forced to listen to more than five minutes of, of like, what, what could just as easily have been, like, maybe 10 to 15 bars of music. Right. It's because in the way right. it's used in the scene, you don't hear it long <laughs> enough to question why it doesn't yeah. ever have any like literal musical dynamics. You just don't want to be alone with Gus Black. <laughs> <laughs> if there's other people around and there's a scene, no, you're like, I, okay, I can do it. If you're alone with Gus don't. Black, you're like, get me out of yeah. you're fearing, You're fearing the Reaper. <laughs> oh my God. You sure as shit don't want to be like waiting in line for the Viper room with Gus Black is, is kind of like, my take on Gus Black. Yeah. Also, I think he, I think somebody should go like clean up the Wikipedia page. It's he's getting. I'm looking at it now because Gus I Black is getting a lot of airtime on our podcast. Also, Gus Black eventually made it onto the Grey's Anatomy soundtrack. Well, so shit, then he's then he's got money. Yeah, now he's yeah. The, yep, those he's royalty paid. checks do not stop. A Grey's check never ends. <laughs> that's true. That's yeah. True. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, a Scream one probably doesn't either, although these these see, these soundtracks are not available on streaming. Um, the uh, scores are available on streaming. I don't know. Do no. you, did you guys find them on they're streaming? Not. No. Yeah, no, no, they're Nowhere. Not. I looked everywhere. I found two you on found streaming. Scream 2? Yeah, I found two on oh, Tidal. On Tidal. It's not on yeah. Apple. Yeah, two. Two is the okay. only one, though. That's oh, no. It's not on Spotify either. 
Yeah. On title. Yeah. Huh. One yeah. is on CD in my basement somewhere in a box because I bought it. Man, you should sell it on Amazon. You can get some money. Man, I might be able to get, um, that, get that Gus Black money. <laughs> the finest business plan in America. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, what do you remember about these movies? Like, not, not re-seeing them now, but your original, did you see them in the theater? Did you remember, do you remember them? I saw it in the theater, and I was like, uh, this seems cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> What's it going to be? And I was just locked in immediately with the opening scene. It's a 12-minute scene. Uh-huh. Starring. Drew Barrymore. Huge She's star. on the poster. She was on the teaser poster, and then after the movie came out, there was like a cast poster. Yeah, exactly. Oh, cool. But famously, they pull the rug out from under you, and it sets up the movie, and you're like, oh, shit. Anything can happen Yes, now. yes. Anyone can die in this. Yeah. And in a theater of high school kids, people were screaming and laughing, and it was just a good, fun, just a really good, fun time. I was like 16 or 17, and it was just I, That really must have a been a fun time. viewing, a bunch of high school kids, yeah. Yeah, I was the exact age that the characters in the movies are for both Scream 1 and Scream 2. I was a senior in high school when the first one came out, and a freshman in college when the second wow. one came out. <laughs> and, yeah. And I remember that the VHS came out this that summer. So the summer before I went to college, I spent many, many, many nights with Drew Barrymore being murdered repeatedly. <laughs> like, you know, you just don't, like watch the first 12 Steve. minutes over and over, and over and over and over. Poor Steve. Yeah, <laughs> sure, Steve. Um, <laughs> they got him in five yeah, seconds. I mean, I remember like uh, racking up late fees at Superstar Video on <laughs> ridiculous sums of money because we would all just like keep the copy of Scream wow. lying around and, and like watch the beginning over and over and over. Yeah, once that is like a classic rental. Yeah, it's totally... Like, it would be worn out when you got it. Exactly. Know. And and I don't think we ever really felt the need to watch it all the way through <laughs> after we'd done that once or twice. Yeah. We were just, like, focused on the bits that we liked the yeah. best. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It was a little weird to return to, though, I have to say, because yeah. I haven't seen it since that like moment when it when when these what, what was so what was weird about returning to it well it made me really miss this kind of movie like mm. i don't mm. i don't think that we have silly horror movies in quite the same way that that we did back then i think that we have lots of silly action adventure movies i think we have things like the lost city with sandy b and we have the mcu <laughs> and you know we have these uh -huh. um we have these tons of movies that are making fun of genre and playing with genre, but they're doing it in ways that are pure comedy and hijinks. And we also have horror movies that in like this renaissance of horror are truly horrifying. They're psychologically horrifying movies, <laughs> right? We have, right. you know, Get Out is the, is the obvious example, right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, but this like, mashup of silliness and horror i i don't know i can't i couldn't remember the last time i'd seen anything contemporary that is making the same moves that the scream movies are um and also it reminded me like what a fucking uh 
act of violence the over tweezing of the eyebrows thing was <laughs> like the, the number the number of women that you see on screen in these movies who must have spent years after the 90s were over regrowing everything interesting really struck me the hair and makeup really truly struck me i was like wow that's what my life was like when mm. I was 18. I, I can see Rose McGowan's eyebrows right now. I'll show you right. <laughs> yeah, like and Courtney almost, Cox, too. Courtney Cox on. has been butchered. <laughs> she, and she looks even wilder in um, Scream 2 with like the red streaks in her hair. Yeah. But I want to hear when yeah, Joe yeah. first uh, saw Scream. Do you have a memory of it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I snuck into it nice. opening night with opening my... Night. Best with my with best friend. No. <laughs> well, no. So this, so this, so I, you know, when I heard that Wes Craven had a new movie coming out, I was so excited because his, you know, he'd sort of. Um, I think the the last film was oh, was it Vampire in Brooklyn? I guess it was New Nightmare, yeah. right? And then Vampire in Brooklyn, which wasn't very good. And if you, if you go back and revisit that, that's a weird movie. Eddie Murphy, Angela Bassett, like he was making like, <laughs> yeah. like that was an odd film. Um, and so I was super excited about it, but nobody had heard right. of it. Nobody was interested in seeing it. My best friend Kristen and I loved horror movies. Um, and we, and this was back, you know, 96, like they were crazy at the theater. The ushers would not let you into a movie. You get kicked out of movies if you were not supposed to be in a rated R film. So we <laughs> bought, like, I think tickets to like One Fine Day, the Michelle Pfeiffer, yes. George yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. And, I think Matt's picking that for our next soundtrack. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> that's a, that's a solid B minus. Yeah. And I think we had to, I don't know. We may have actually even stayed for that movie. So we were like in the theater. You had to be like, you had to find zone, out if like, they were going to get together and then I'm joking. Yeah. Well that, but also you had to be like in the theater already to, you know, sneak in properly. So we eventually sneak in between cleanings. We sit in like, you know, the handicap seats in the back behind the door. Um, and nobody's there. Like no wow. one's there. It, it's just a few people. Um, I think it might've come out on a Wednesday or something. I don't know. So I don't think it was a Friday. I think it was a Wednesday. And we just sat in the back, you know, and trying to be discreet. But the moment that that chair goes through the patio door, my friend screams her head off <laughs> and an older guy in the front turns and shushes. Really? Us. So oh my God. Shushing us in a horror movie. And it's, it was like, and it's called scream. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The irony. And it was just us and a few like older people. I say older. They're probably yeah. my age. Yeah. But, um, but uh, we watched it and we were, we went crazy yeah. for it. We couldn't believe what we had just seen. Like starting from the opening sequence on, we were just like, whoa, this movie is incredible. And then we were part of that word of mouth, you know, machine. I took my dad to see it that weekend or, you know, rather he took me. I said, Dad, you got to see it. You're going to love it. He's a big horror fan. You know, my siblings came. We all saw it. And then I kept going back with friends. We kept sneaking in. I, I saw it several times in the theater. Um, and I was just one of, you know, I, I'm somebody who, when I really love something, I want everybody to love it. I want to tell you about it. I want to, you know, mm -hmm. much of the chagrin of my students. I'm very excited about things <laughs> that I like. And then, like you said, it was in the theater so long that there was almost like, a clean handoff between one and two. Yeah. Two was yeah. suddenly, and you know, not to jump ahead, but the two opening night, by contrast, we bought tickets the day before at the theater, went to the machine, bought yeah. them. Uh, the lines were down the wow. escalator outside the theater. It took up like four screens of the Cineplex. It was intense. And there were people sitting in the aisles. That's cool. Because obviously other kids had snuck in yeah, yeah. and people took seats and it was just like, 
a mess, a crazy fire Were there fire any people hazard. wearing uh, ghost face masks? No, fortunately, God, yeah. because that opening would have been <laughs> no, yeah. extra yeah. unsettling <laughs> if there were people like that. Um, but yeah, that was my experience. So I feel very much like a gold star screen. Like I was there opening night. There was nobody else there. And I wouldn't shut up about it for months. And, you know, so I take some credit there. You're welcome. <laughs> Mama gripped onto the milkman's hand And then she finally gave birth Years go by, still I don't know Who shall inherit this earth And no one will know my name until one of the things that Scream is most remembered for, of course, this is kind of the whole bit, is self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. Characters in the movie have seen horror movies. They know how horror movies operate, and they talk mm -hmm. about this. Rewatching it, I was sort of surprised in one... There's not as much of that as I remembered. In one, it actually didn't really happen until pretty late in the movie that they start talking about movies. And I was sort of surprised because that's the thing yeah. I remembered so but much. But I mean, they open with it, like with the quiz, they they signal it. You're right. They don't go deep, but he signals like about the, the pop quiz question when Drew Barrymore's on the phone in the opening. And then two, of course, goes, whole goes hog. all the way with it, mm -hmm. all the way in. <laughs> I think it's interesting because it was a new thing. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight... It's not the defining thing of watching Scream 1, but at the time, it felt like it was. Mm -hmm. So much so that when they made Scream 2, they're like, this whole movie mm -hmm. is going to be about that. We're going to reference movies the entire mm -hmm. time. And so it shows how quickly <laughs> that self-referential thing was popular, right? And then I was thinking about just this thing in general and the culture mm -hmm. that we've become. It's not too far after this that we're looking at things like Family Guy, which is nothing but reference, right? Everything is a reference to a thing that came before. And so much of television, movies, comedy becomes that. Why was that so exciting and so new and necessary and fun in 1996, 1997? Like, what was going on there? I have a theory about that. I'd love to hear it. I think it's a kind of extended Irish wake. It's like an elegiac move hmm. for a long, like a very long period of mourning for things we now understand are not complicated enough. Like to me, this moment of like self-referential postmodern 90s art making was really about waking up one morning and, and seeing like, oh, this innocent time of this mo recent past of the last 20 or 30 years is is not enough anymore, but we're not ready to let it go. And so I, I think it's this uh. like long drawn out pro like processing of the loss of of those things that are no longer good enough or smart enough or interesting enough. And the and the like acceptable way of processing that from a cultural standpoint is to refer to them, regurgitate them, examine them. Like there's a like a cud chewing kind of move, I think, that's happening <laughs> until we get to a place where we can imagine something wholly new. And that and those moments do come. Like, yes, we have Family Guy still in the air now, or whatever. But I, but I think that there's a, there's a period in the very late '90s, um, the second half of the '90s, probably, and and maybe just a touch into the into the 21st century before um, like the Forever War starts to change things, where we're not yet in like 
the dystopian horror timeline that we all now live in, but we're also no longer okay with these simpler um, stories. And so in order to mourn those stories and get past them before we know what we have to do next, we end up in this period of like 10 or 15 years of, of just like talking endlessly about the thing we're about to set aside and move beyond. Yeah, I think when you say examine, that's the right word. Because I kept thinking like, you know, a movie I loved as a kid was Hot Shots. Remember Hot Shots with Charlie Sheen? Mm -hmm. And that came out in 1991 and you had Naked Gun and Hot Shots and they were just... Oh yeah, Hot Shots. Yeah, it took me a second, but yeah, and yeah, yeah. And Hot Shots uh -huh. would reference Rambo and Top Gun and yeah, everything. Yeah. And I thought it was the funniest shit I had ever seen as like an 11-year-old. <laughs> yeah. right, and right. I love Naked Gun. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I guess those all yeah. kind of came from Airplane. But I was like, I guess that's the difference between parody and then Scream. Because they're doing all the movie references. Mm -hmm. yeah. But when Heather said examine, I guess Scream does it. They're examining them a little more. They're playing with them and making their own. And they're not doing straight up parody. Because that's definitely was going on before that. You know, before Family Guy and all that. You had these spoofy. Um, I always think of Airplane as the birth of that. Or Spaceballs, right? Like, Spaceballs is a parody. It's yeah, not a... Yeah, but they don't hit yeah, that weird tone yeah, yeah. that you're talking about where Scream or, dare I say, Pulp Fiction, when they're kind of examining the film world, unpacking mm -hmm. it, and then trying to still make their own movie at the same time, not just doing pure parody. Yep. Uh, Scream actually, Scream, Scream uses the self-referential stuff as its plot points. I mean, it actually... It's not just reference. It's not just people just talking about it mm -hmm. because it's cute or whatever. They actually, I think, quite brilliantly yeah. use it so that you're like, oh, yeah, this person has to die or this person can't die is yeah. at the forefront of your mind because the movie has already told you that no, these are the rules, right? So you're like, you're kind of stuck in this place of being like, oh, I know who's not going to die. I know who is going to die. But then, of course, it's playing with that too. So it it uses it as a plot point, which I think uh, I think it does rather brilliantly and the rules given to you which i always love by a guy who works at a video store the jamie kennedy character which is yes. a very 90s great thing and the guy's like i literally work <laughs> at the video store that's why i'm the professor of this shit and um that scene when they was i think is really funny and kind of charming when they put the curfew down because the serial killer's on the list and everyone goes to the video store to rent movies i found that really like heartwarming and i was like nostalgic for that yeah oh man i miss video stores <laughs> big time big time I would just also add that, you know, the original Scream feels to me, Scream 2 obviously makes it more of like a Hollywood blockbuster and, mm -hmm. and the franchise moves in that direction. But, you know, I, I'm not Gen X, but close enough to feel like I think that Scream really fits most comfortably. The original Scream fits most comfortably in those sort of um, Gen mm -hmm. X affirming indie movies I totally think like, yes clerks. right like a slacker a singles uh -huh. okay right um yeah I love clerks, uh, definitely clerks right. and eventually you, there's a jay and silent bob <laughs> cameo yes. in three eventually um even more so or beyond this the the self-referential in terms of the movies i feel like there's yeah. this you know like affirmation of like you know like fuck off calling gen x a bunch of slackers Ooh, yeah we're going to have films that examine it and, and call it out in the films. But because the films are saying something artistic, it almost creates a substance and like a rationale um, for whatever might be, you know, criticized as like the slacker lifestyle. Right. So yeah. I feel like there's yeah. a gen X component in there that to me 
especially yeah. in the first film, yeah. or maybe only in the first film, feels yeah. very much present and it fits in that bucket as opposed to what the other movies are doing. Two goes on steroids with the horror references yeah. and the yeah. WB of it all. <laughs> the WB yes. took me a moment. Um, but one yeah. really fits more with like a Bridget Fonda, Eric Stoltz, Eddie Vedder I film, Ethan Hawke. I, I, had, right? I right? watched them you know, side by side and it does kind of feel like Scream is the end of Gen X mm-hmm. and Scream 2 is the beginning of the millennial thing. That works for me. I like that. That's a really nice yeah. little split there because they do have such different vibes. They do. That's great. Uh, All in absolutely. one year. In one year. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In one year. And it's um, like the turning yeah. point. I, the we should contact you and tell them that they need to change all of their birth years accordingly. <laughs> yeah, according to Scream yeah. and Scream 2. I like that. She said the time is unfair. To a woman her age. Now the wisdom has come. She said she realizes she's seen a better day. She said she can't look back. We are soon going to talk about the music in Scream 2, but the thing that's going to get us from one to the other is the fact that the movies have a consistent mm-hmm. track, and that's the Nick Cave track, Red Right Hand, which, you know, a lot of people now know as the theme from Peaky Blinders, right? But mm-hmm. um, it's it's a big it's a big feature in the movie, and from what I understand, in the whole franchise, I'm admitting I haven't seen all of them, yeah. but I have seen many of them. Yeah. But Joe, yeah. yeah, you know more about this than I do. So tell us, how does Nick Cave end up in this? The song feels like it was almost written for the movie tell me about it I'm, I'm very curious well so i feel like i'm i must have missed something in my research and i checked with every scream head i could find i couldn't find a specific um like reason for why this song appears in the first film um okay but you know it was on a nick cave and the bad seeds album uh let love in in 1994 the first movie i believe it appeared in was dumb and dumber (laughs) 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 yeah in like in like a uh a scene where where they're they're in disguise stealing something i don't remember dumb and dumber that well but it was used as sort of like a you know the backdrop of of them stealing something that's Um, oh that's funny and then it shows up in scream and the song appears in the quick montage where uh, the town is going on curfew and shops are shutting down and mothers are picking their kids up and, you know, running away with them, uh, you know, and there's a comment by one of the characters about it being like the town that dreaded sundown or yes, movie reference. Yeah. Which is another great, great reference. So it has this sort of like folksy, gothy, you know, that's kind of the best way that I can describe Nick Cave. I don't listen to very much, but it feels like everything feels like a murder ballad, right? Um, It gets used in the first film in this way. And for some reason, they bring it back in two in the beginning when Stab, the the, the fictionalized <laughs> version of Scream, is uh, playing as everybody's settling down yeah. before we see Heather Graham, we hear the organ from Red Right Hand sort of open up into the scene. And so it gets revisited and it's there. And then it appears, there's a reprise um, after Sarah Michelle Gellar's character is killed and they're all running from the frat house. It plays very, very quietly as Sidney Prescott is realizing that, oh shit, like these murders are really happening again. Um, And it brilliantly fades out as Laurie Metcalf's character is getting off the phone 
and you know uh brushing past courtney cox because she of course she's the killer right so she's she's one of the killers the scream 2 soundtrack features an alternative version of it that when i was doing my research i was like wait a second is this a cover is somebody else doing this it sounds almost like a demo it's a longer version about eight minutes take a little walk to the edge of town go across the track where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as it shifts and cracks it, it, it sounds like very uh it doesn't fit the soundtrack at all it feels like a complete like anomaly sound wise in uh scream 2 is it gus black you hear it it's not <laughs> gus black <laughs> who is this i forget it's nick cave but it's a different version of it but it's okay. nick cave yeah. doing it's an, an alternative, alternative version. version of it or someone else. Oh. Yes. Did he record it for Scream 2? I don't know. Yeah, don't, I don't know. I, did, I was looking into it. I don't think it was recorded for 2. I think it was just an alternate version that they put on it so people wouldn't be buying the God, same so version good. twice. I didn't realize that was him yeah. again. That's really funny. I could listen to it. Yeah, forever. it is him again. And I can't, I can't find it in the actual film. So I don't think that version appears anywhere. Oh, okay. Okay. Then, yeah, so it's kind of like a bonus track. So, you know, if you, if you bought one, you know, you don't have to buy mm -hmm. that same remix. song again. Right. Um, but then but then Scream 3 is a complete re-recording. Nick Cave re-records the song, and they oh, yeah. give it a very Scream treatment. Right? So the orchestra is part, yeah. A little walk to the edge of town Now spread your wings Don't the lights of the city look so damn pretty When you fly so high So it sounds much more like a... Is this the Peaky like Blinders a, version? Uh, it might be. This might be the Peaky Blinders version. I think this I might think be the more version they use is. because it's way more, way more upbeat. More upbeat, exactly. This is the most Leonard Cohen version, I think. Oh yeah, yes, yes, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I hear that. And they overlay some of, some of the orchestrals, like eighties Leonard um, Cohen. I'm not sure if they were. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if they were from the the Scream Three score. Um, Interesting. I could, I could find out if the if the third version actually has um, strings from Marco Beltrami. I'm not sure if it does, but. It was re-recorded specifically for three. Um, and then it is not in four. It says because of copyright reasons, I tend to think that they, because four was supposed to like trick us into thinking it was the start of a new trilogy, but four actually pulls the rug out. From, I mean, I'm spoiling four if some of you <laughs> haven't seen it, uh, but four is supposed to be a reboot or the killers are rebooting the original movie and doing things differently. Surprise, surprise, not one of the new cast survives. Only the original three survive because as Sydney says at the end, don't fuck with the original. Okay. Oh, and wow, yeah. it, it, so it's a grand commentary on all these reboots and remakes that were happening circa 2010, 2011. Um, so Red Right Hand is not in it, but it does make a cameo just for a few seconds in Scream 2022, <laughs> when a character is being killed, Red Right Hand is playing in his car wow. while he's being murdered outside of his car. And so they, they use it just as sort of a, 
you know, sort of a reference. So it really is a one, two, and three, you know, uh, it kind of marks mm-hmm. the trilogy in this way. But I, I may have not done the best research, but as far as I can see, there was no... I can't find any reason. I listened to the commentaries even to try to find <laughs> out if they say anything about why they use it. And I went yeah. to all the parts where it appears. Uh-huh. Wes Craven doesn't mention it. The producers don't That's mention interesting. it. That's um, interesting. It yeah. fits so well. It, um, yeah, it does. Like, and in the first sort of, one, it's one of the few songs that you like actually like sit with the lyrics. Like you can actually like hear the song yeah. in a way that you can't with many of the other songs in the first yeah. one. And it fits. And it's like, you're like, oh, wow, this song is like about what we're watching right now. It really feels like it. Right. And and the and part three uh, uses the song when they go to the uh, Sunrise Studios where Stab Three is being filmed. So they're using <laughs> Red Right Hand as they do this establishing uh-huh. shot of a movie studio, mm-hmm. and Courtney Cox's uh, Gail Weathers goes in to spy and do some investigative reporting and find out what's going on. And it, and it sort of ends when we see the film director um, again, the film director who turns out to be the killer in Three the song cuts out when he appears. So they've used it very purposefully in two and three to sort of give you, you know, like in retrospect, you can look back and see that the killer is being matched mm-hmm. up with the song. Mm-hmm. And it also is used in the end credits of three. So they obviously believe that it holds weight in terms of narrative for that yeah. trilogy. Um, because you know, they wouldn't recycle it in these ways. Right. If they didn't uh, think so. Um, but yeah, I don't find any definitive uh, quotes from anybody about that relationship, That's which is surprising to me. Yeah. Have any of you guys read the Red Hand Files? Oh, man, I was going to talk about Mm-mm. that too. No. Isn't it something? Holy moly! It's I. It's so powerful. What is T- tell what us is the Red Hand Files? Oh, the Red Hand Files is a, a kind of AMA that Nick Cave runs. Um, that started after his the first of two of his sons who have. Preceded him in death, died. Um, Nick Nick Cave is kind of like uh, today's C.S. Lewis. Yeah, he's like he's got a a connection to Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of faith-based universe that seems at once rational and also really spiritually grounded, and he understands grief and loss on a level that very few human beings do, and And can articulate that. And can talk about it and can respond with a shocking amount of empathy um, to anybody and everybody. So, Red Hand Files is just a a blog, really, where he uh, answers questions that people who are grieving uh, send to him. He'll he'll answer basically anything. And it it started after his his first son died, before his second son died a few years later oh it's God. incredibly oh, wow. powerful i cannot recommend it enough it's it's you can you can pick pretty much any he posts these just little random question topics and you can pick sort of any one and you're always gonna like they're pretty short generally yeah you can read it quick mm-hmm. and uh there he'll he'll just knock you out with stuff you can read it deceptively quickly you can like read it quickly and then you can yeah. be like whoa wait a second i need to go back and process all of the incredible insight that i just read as though it were like a blurb i'm looking at it right now just just to just to hype it a little bit like each blog begins with the question as like the title so you see the question and you decide whether you want to read it or not and they range from literally what is the point of life now i haven't read this one but that's the question what is the point of life i'm gonna go ahead and bet that he answers it (laughs) which is kind of crazy right (laughs) i would i would just skip that question but he answers it so it's from that to another one who do you want to win love island and I'm going to go ahead and bet 
that the answer is pretty interesting and I don't care about Love Island. I mean, it's just, he's just incredibly good at it. There's one that he wrote once where um, somebody asked him, somebody was offended by Morrissey's embracing of a sort of potentially white nationalist British sort of thing. Right. That, that like there's mm-hmm. there's that that Morrissey, we, we don't know how much Morrissey's tied up with that, but he he kind of seemed to be embracing it a little bit. And somebody was like, hey, what do I do with this? I love the Smiths. I love Morrissey. And I've, I've sent that one to many people because I think his answer f- for me was like good enough for me. And I'm not going to put words in his mouth. Ma- I'm not going to tell you what he said. Go look it oh, up. But it's, it's, it definitely was for what me. It was like, no, no, it was like, I, no I that's think, the answer. No, I think that's Joshua was right. Like you it's should, his words, man. You should go look at the red hand files. Like, yeah. They're, powerful. They're powerful. I want to know writing. why I should still like Morrissey and why he's not a Nazi. Go read Nick Cave <laughs> tell you because he'll tell you much more succinctly and better than I could. It's. I it's was great. never a big Morrissey fan, so I really don't care. But I know there's the hardcore. I know there's the hardcore. Uh, so that's the end of the podcast. It was nice knowing you. And. Uh, but what if Gus Black did a yeah. Smith's cover? <laughs> Shop. Lifters of the world hand it over. Night and take over. Never said I was innocent. I won't burn it out for the things I've done to you. Never said I was anything good. I should die from the shameful world. At the beginning of Scream 2, there's, I think, a really fun scene. Not the beginning, the beginning, because the beginning ends, it begins with Stab, which is the movie within the movie, and it's a blast because I, when I saw it in the theater, I remember being terrified that the person behind me was going to kill me. <laughs> because it's like, that's what's happening, and I was in a packed theater, and I was like, Jesus Christ, like, of course this is happening. Like, Actually, somebody's going to do this. Watching Scream 2 this week, I thought to myself, I am so glad I never saw it in the theater. <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. it was brilliant. So, but then then they go to the college where where now uh, Sydney Prescott is now in college, and uh, we meet the new cast of characters. Which you know, hey, let me give a quick nod to the um, the interracial cast of Scream Two. I mean, yeah. pretty impressive, man. I mean, like, sure, they're not necessarily the main people in the movie. I'm talking about the black characters, for instance, which are new to the movie because they're not in Scream One. But that cast is that cast is uh, there's a lot of color on that cast and that's that's not um that's not nothing i mean and they're also you know the 90s very they're very direct about the fact that they are likely to be killed that like a black body is more yeah, likely right. yeah, yeah, to yeah. be sacrificed yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. very clear about mm-hmm. the fact that like this is white people's entertainment um we are dipping into it with a lot of awareness and side eye i mean my my 14 year old kid was watching Scream 2 with kind of sort of side by side next to me and after having watched the second half of Scream 1 and within minutes of Scream 2 starting with those black characters uh, and their self-awareness about the fragility of the black body in horror yeah. movies my kid was like mm-hmm. oh this one's better like this, like, this is already a <laughs> yeah. better movie <laughs> yeah, yeah. well they quickly addressed the criticism of the first one that it was so white instantly eight months later as we were saying just to uh-huh. sort of because we've spoken about this in other ways i mean this is a decade that began with almost no major black movies that are coming out i mean this it happens in this decade at the you know it starts 
kind of a little bit with like some of the you know uh menace to society some of the more the gangster stuff in in la kind of but that stuff starts to be hits you know and so they start making more of it you know and those movies i mean for the first like several years if a movie had a majority black cast it was released on a Wednesday, not on a Friday, because they thought it would be too dangerous to release those movies on the weekend. That's so crazy. God. That's true. And that went on for years. So this is a decade where that went from like, they began the decade literally. And I mean, this sounds like I'm being racist by saying this because it's so insane. They began that decade thinking black people didn't spend money on movies. Like that's crazy to wrap your head around but that's that's really they're shocked when it starts happening and so you know we get to 1997 now they've got the the biggest sequel in the planet is coming out and they know hey we're gonna put jada pinkett smith in the first scene we're gonna get butts in this mm -hmm. movie theater i mean this is a this is a demographic that wants to see movies and wants to see themselves in movies we're making money off this sucker so it's i think it's pretty interesting but that's a sidebar because what i really want to talk about is the film class scene and i'm going to splice them a little bit <laughs> up in here because it is so fun it is so fun first of all it's kind of funny that there's like a film class in a college that only talks about major blockbusters that's exactly <laughs> like there's no one there talking about yes. godard or whatever exactly you know there's no, my wife not one like, wait yeah this is a film class and they're all like yeah, they only talk about huge movies that everybody in the theater knows about. Or aliens, yeah. Yeah, 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 which is kind of funny. But it's, you know, they're talking about whether a sequel can be better than the original and has it ever happened. And of course, it's very funny because we are watching a sequel and, and we know that and it's self-referential. I want to propose the argument and i'm curious whether anybody's going to argue with me i love it when you start by telling us we're getting ready for an argument this movie absolutely achieves that goal i think scream 2 is incredible really I freaking <laughs> loved it i rewatched it really? and i was laughing i'm ready I was, to argue i, I, I was laughing <laughs> so much i freaking loved it i liked the first one i loved the second one and i mean it's my capital l wow. loved it <laughs> it's my number one movie in the franchise okay. by mile oh, my favorite. i did no. not expect yeah, I, I was like getting an inkling that someone was gonna like scream 2 better than scream 1 because it's Oh, I, I well, if we're if you're surprised by this, Matt, I want to also cast my vote with Joe and Joshua. All I, of you, I think it is light years. <laughs> really better. nice. The only utility of Scream One at this point is to make Scream is Two. Is to get to Scream yeah. Two. <laughs> <laughs> we have to hear Matt well, now. Well, I, I, I I'll, I'll start this by saying I am a Godfather Part One guy. <laughs> I don't I do think it's better uh -huh. than two. But for different reasons, <laughs> I felt like there were moments and I'm gonna admit something, I had never seen Scream Two before. I love Scream One and then just lost my way. Oh. Never saw it. First time That's watching wild. it. And <laughs> a year was a year was too much attention. And I feel for Matt. like <laughs> I feel eight months. And I feel like um <laughs> that maybe if you knew it previously you you have more of a, a connection to it, but watching it like completely cold after Scream One, it's there are moments and maybe 
it's hard to criticize it because it's fulfilling its intentions because it wants to be a little sillier and it wants to have more fun and you know it wants to mess with you and it wants to be the sequel that's better and it's it's doing that but I just found it to start getting so ridiculous. Not that the first one isn't ridiculous. That at some scenes I was like, is this like an Austin Powers movie? What's going on here? And I thought it was like getting a little too much and a little too cute and winky, which the first one only met halfway. But, it, you know, it was fun and enjoyable to watch. But, like, I can't watch Jerry O'Connell sing um, that song oh, on I think the he's table. Great. I was like, I think is this great. my best friend's wedding <laughs> all so of a good. sudden? Yeah. And then the ending when they do the speech for like 20 minutes. And I yeah. was just like, it just felt like a movie and I was having fun. And I, I'm sure in the, in the scream community, people talk about this a lot, <laughs> but I just saw it as a movie that doesn't really deserve any accolades. It's just like a fun movie. That's, that's how I saw it. I purposely did not look up how the scream community felt about it because I wanted, I didn't want my opinion to be, to be, uh, touched by other by by the collective ideas of things i wasn't sure uh, you wanted to be the virgin who is going to survive <laughs> but i yeah. like i like this how it's the god it's the godfather 2 apparently of the scream franchise I, I so it really so. is a godfather 2 that's what that's that's what i'm arguing i'm arguing that scream is a very very rare example of a sequel that is better than the original and i would say like you know empire strikes back but they say in scream that that doesn't count because that was part of a uh, of a trilogy that, that is that is a good sequel that that, that i agree with the empire strikes back take <laughs> what about hot shots part do what about Sister Act back in the habit? <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> I would say my Scream 2 viewing was pretty cold. I saw it when it came out, but it's not like I remembered it. I mean, I, I mean, when I was rewatching it, I was like, oh, yeah, they start in the movie theater. I remember that now. But I, none of it was fresh in my mind. I mean, I definitely didn't remember the jokes. And I don't think I appreciated the first time some of what I appreciated so much this time. Like, for instance, David Arquette is... David adorable <laughs> i i mean how did i miss out on that guy he's so funny and so cute yeah. i mean i loved him he's so good there's a scene where him and jamie kennedy are where where he says like jamie kennedy might be the 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 killer and, and jamie kennedy's mm -hmm. like well if i'm if i if, if i if i'm a suspect that means you're a suspect too and david arquette thinks about that for a minute and it's like Let's move on. Um, and, 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 and the, 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 the face that he does, the work that they're doing there, I thought he was delightful. I'll tell you somebody else who I've never really given much thought about at all um, is Courtney Cox. And I think she's terrific. She's so good. Yeah, two of them. I, she's so good. She's so good. You can understand how they totally. fell in love and got married. No, and it looks sense. like you're watching people fall in love. Yeah. They legitimately yeah. look like they love each yeah. other or are falling yeah. in love with each other. They are. They totally. are yeah. falling in love with each other. And you can see that. It's so charming. I thought so, too. Sorry, Matt, but I would rather watch Courtney and David fall in love. She really does knock Billy it out of the park in the first anyway. one and the second one. <laughs> <laughs> if you want your heart to break, watch them fall out of love in four. That's oh, oh, that's I nice. actually haven't seen four. I think I, I, think I stopped yes. with three. Yes. I have yeah. not seen four. But wait, wait, wait. You're... Oh. Joe, you should go for four. Go for four and when five. When you're saying you're charmed by them falling in love, you're talking about you're seeing through the performances and watching the actors like share looks, because yes. David Arquette plays a mentally ill person who doesn't know how to do anything. <laughs> I don't think I he... didn't read him that way. Wait, say He's more. He's such an exaggerated. 
I think you're thinking of Harry. scary movie. I don't think you're thinking what? of Scream. What? The jokes and Scream. Are you kidding me? He like doesn't make sense. He's like a <laughs> he's, he's like, like a bumbling Barney Fife. Yeah, pop. in a, in a modern movie, and then she's supposed to be the savvy savvy woman, and then I have no idea why she would like a 1950s like dope. Because he's cute. He's cute. He's adorable, and he's sweet, and he's he's. He's, he's got the good. Come I was on, 24 Matt. for a whole year. That's a great line. He pulls that off. That's a great line. And that's yeah. that's cute. Yeah. But other than that, he's just like a cartoon character. He's adorable. I Joshua totally buy loves it. David Arquette so much. <laughs> <laughs> he represents the authenticity of human feeling. Oh my god! That court. Are we talking? About- <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm being very serious. Like this is this is what she finds appealing in him is that like she needs someone to yeah. help break her mm-hmm. out of this kind of transactional relationship she has to her career, her audience, and her life. She is she is a sellout and and like a performer until he shows her what an authentic human relationship and human motivations might look like. Come on, yeah, I get it. Opposites attract. Yeah, her arc, her arc really is because of him, you know. Yes, it rests on him. He's, totally, he is the engine of her whole character. She's great. Point. I, hadn't thought of that I will say she knocks it out. Of the I part. mean, her, yeah, yeah, her scene. I think that her chase scene through that sound studio is one of the greatest in cinema history. It's, crazy. it's so yeah. tense. It was so scary in the theater because back then in 97, you really believed that she would be killed. Sure, there was no reason not? to yeah. think that yeah. she was going yeah. on to more movies. You, yeah. you thought she's going to die in this scene and it's really stressful. It's really scary. And when she thinks she's watching him die in front of her, it's yeah. just, it's great. And, it's just, yeah. it's, see, it's classic. When you see the soundproofing, as it's like yes. the most beautiful yeah. foreshadowing you know immediately oh fuck someone yeah. is going yeah. to scream and be unheard uh, it's it's really it's really great stuff matt i'm really sorry that it no no that. i'm saying it's a fun movie i enjoyed that scene but i'm a i'm a scream i'm a scream one guy <laughs> you're like oh great monica monica from <laughs> season three of friends is in this movie what the fuck and then she knocks it out of the park and you're like oh i need to matt, take courtney she makes Ka- that joke yeah. about the jennifer but aniston it makes you it made right. you take courtney <laughs> Cox seriously you're like oh she's a movie yeah. star because remember she was just a random sitcom person yeah and then she crosses into no matt remember she was in the bosses yeah. yes and Anthony she was in, she was in some she was in uh family ties was, she was in family ties yeah. there's another movie she's in but you know he's ventura she was, she was, active. yes she, she was she was monica though you everyone knew her yes, as monica sure, and sure. she and, and this yeah, made you yeah, be yeah. like oh maybe she's got some chops maybe she's got some moves and yeah, yeah it made me it made she's me got like these it. two iconic these two iconic pop culture characters that's yes. pretty i thought you were gonna say um, two iconic something else because that's sure they put her in and scream <laughs> two that she's running around in forever the, the tight I was shirt like, having yes, flashbacks this, to my yeah, youth and be like oh shirt. yeah i forgot about how they just threw hot yeah. actresses at you as a young man watching this sure, franchise yeah. as well she wears that outfit in friends as well the exact same outfit, oh. which is a cute thing. no you she see her doesn't. in a rerun yeah. she's wearing the white shirt and the jeans oh, yeah, that's funny. Funny. um i just wanted to say that I, I i think that that sound booth moment um is also such an awesome contrast to the opening sequence, which is so loud, which is so deafening, yeah. and yeah. Mm-hmm. it's scary for the opposite reason. Everybody's there, the room is crowded, mm-hmm. the murder is happening in front of you, and yet 
you know, you can't stop no it. No one so, is aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's such a good, I mean, that's, so Scream 2, you know, there, there's some argument in the Scream community that it's like overstuffed and overlong, but I love it for that. I love that it takes its time. I love that it's, and a part of that too is they were shooting and editing. Yeah. Like, on the same they days, they were doing sure. it so yeah. fast. Uh, she, you know, she was going to film Friends. Uh, Nev Campbell was shooting Party of Five, like three days a week, and coming back to Scream for four days a week. And it was just like back and forth. So everybody was sort of, you know, it was a mad rush. So who knows what they might have cut if they had more time with it? But I'm glad they didn't have more time with it because I think you feel that urgency, you feel that zeitgeist, you feel that they wanted to incorporate as many ideas as they could into the film in a way that made sense. Um, and I think that that's one of the strengths of the movie. And I, I love that there's there are so many characters. I remember watching in the theater and feeling like I was convinced. I was like, the sorority girls are the fucking. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I was this time. Perfect. I know it's perfect. Them. Yes. I know it's them. I felt I was so it. disappointed yeah. when it wasn't them. I was like, no, it's not them. <laughs> um, and then instead we get a great reference to an even older slasher movie, right? And that's, you know, with, with Mrs. Loomis. And, mm -hmm. um, so I feel like, yeah, for all those reasons, it, it's, you know, but I think that the, the things that Matt is saying, I, I, there is some feeling in, and the Scream fan base is really hardcore and they, you know, debate these movies endlessly on Reddit, which, factors into four and five. If I have you to find to my those. people there. I'm going on being like, yeah, yeah. Ones, where you and, <laughs> but that's the thing. There are some who feel like Scream was such a pure, perfect movie that felt grounded in realism and they kind of blame two for starting it in the direction of uh, uh, not quite jumping sharks, but yeah. you know, sort of mm -hmm. becoming like a giant hot air balloon that's a little bit above ground okay. and you know, never quite regain never quite regains its footing in the so room. they're scream essentialists and that's <laughs> well no but like i was saying it's fulfilling its intentions though it's trying to do that you it's know a remarkable feat right. to rush a movie that much and it work that much in my opinion kevin totally. williamson yeah. wrote the hell out of it i mean the jokes are so good the plotting is so good you talk about the soundproofing part um when she's um when she's talking on the on the phone the cordless phone at home and she can't go outside because Oh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, she's yeah, talking yeah. on the cordless phone and she can't go outside because the cordless phone can't work, so she has to yes. go back in the house. Yes. It's brilliant. She has to stay in. Brilliant. Yeah. So brilliant. Because yeah. it's like, we all know she shouldn't go in the house. She knows she shouldn't go in the house. But you got to go back in the house. It's so good. It's great. And really they reshot they reshot the film class scene after they cast Sarah Michelle Gellar because they wanted to put her in one more scene to establish uh. her before you saw uh -huh. her in the sorority house. And so they, they actually refilmed it so they could include her and Joshua Jackson yeah. in the scene and give it sort of that, yeah. you know, Just, back to that WBification. Yeah, WB, movie. yeah. yeah to like sort of elevate yeah, yeah. it. I could and not she, of course, was, yeah. how many um, <laughs> moments I was like, oh, yeah, that person. from the Yeah, movies. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that that is, yep. makes it, that made it really fun. Because there was at least like 30 people that made you smirk that they cast in that. Yeah. We would be remiss if we didn't mention that Scream 2 was the first major internet uh, script leak that ever oh, happened. Oh, cool. And they, had really? to re and they had to rewrite the ending and they had to change wow. a ton of stuff because it, like, somebody got a Wait, hold of how? the script, faxed out copies, it got put wow. on the internet, and they had to. How much rewrite. rewriting? Like, did they change the kill? 
Um, was it a, yeah? Was it a different Lori? Was it not Lori? They, was it Karen? not Aunt Jackie? <laughs> <laughs> it was. It, it uh, they 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 had another version of it that was um, Jerry O'Connell's character, and um, oh, I'm forgetting her name, but Hallie, the best friend, that they were sort of a. Um, what are their wow. names from Natural Born Killers? Um, okay. Mickey and Mickey Mallory. and Mallory. Yeah. Were those their names? Mm-hmm. That they were sort of a, a, a you know fucked up uh, okay. lovers who were going after uh, Sid. Um, but but Kevin Williamson claims that Mrs. Loomis was always the killer, and that was just like you know a dummy version of the ending that went out. But much of the script that preceded it was exactly the same as what ended up in the movie. So they'd already filmed so much of it that I think the only control they had was to, um, you know, mm-hmm. mess with some things in the ending. And, you know, uh, but yeah, it was one of the first major script leaks and, you know, it led to all sorts of chaos. And from that point on, all the pages had to be like watermarked and they were red and you could only read them in a special yeah. light. Like yeah, they went yeah. really crazy. And then, you know, with scream three, they had to, you know, that had a troubled, uh, uh, production so they had to keep that off the internet and four was rewritten something like 18 times so the scream films in general after the first one have troubled productions um (laughs) yeah but maybe not maybe not troubled soundtracks though that's a good segue when you see a nun like me, keep screaming with the reaper. I'm from the ghetto, got paid with the in the people. All right. So the Scream 1 soundtrack, we talked about how it's, um, you know, a bit unremarkable, definitely not a big hit. Scream 2 soundtrack is a hit, top 50 billboard. And I think that what's interesting about the Scream 2 soundtrack for our purposes is how much it epitomizes the big soundtrack era. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about that we're in the middle of this time when it's like, if you're going to have a major movie, you better have a major soundtrack. And boy, do they deliver on this one. Not that it's necessarily a good soundtrack, but (laughs) it is full of big names. So Mm -hmm. just to run through a couple, and I definitely, I'm going to get a little bit deeper into some of these, but I just want to give an overview here to say we've got Master P, Sugar Ray, D'Angelo, Dave Matthews Band, Collective Soul, Foo Fighters, Everclear, Less Than Jake, huge bands, huge, huge, huge Yeah, you can see the budget. Yeah, yeah, you can see the budget Mm -hmm. there. They're going all out. They've they've left... They've left TVP records. I <laughs> kicked them to the curb. Yeah, it's Columbia Records now, and they're getting the big guns because they're like, hey, this is a major movie. We're going to sell some records, and they do, and uh, it's a big hit. Re-listening to this soundtrack, or listening to not re-listening, listening to this soundtrack for the first time, because let's mm. be honest, I never listened to it before. <laughs> I mean, put it on a on a shelf with like like essential 90s music or something. It is adorably 90s. Like, I was like, I actually think this might be kind of fun. Like, this is all kind of terrible, but it's kind of fun to dive back into this world where we're so busy. We always listen to soundtracks that have, like, a lot of really good music or spare weird shit that we're like, why is that there? Or these, you know, we we debate these things a lot. This one is, like, a lot of really popular bands doing songs that weren't really big that they're not really known for um they're kind maybe they're throwaway songs i'm not exactly sure but it sounds so much like 1997 that it's (laughs) it's incredible even though i didn't know the songs 
listening to it again, mm-hmm. it's like yeah. this is turning on the radio to that era. It's yeah. a remarkable dive into the 90s, unlike anything we've listened to as a soundtrack. And it sure. reminds you there was like two 90s. There was like the early alternative and grunge 90s, and then there was that grew into this like super poppiness. 90s. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and it reminds it, it remind you that everyone says the 90s, but you know, we're the nerds who are between gen x and millennials but there's definitely like two parts to the 90s vibe i feel like when it comes to music maybe you know maybe even totally agree with you matt no no i 100 percent with you there's an early 90s music moment and a late 90s music moment and they are very different a lot of the bands on here are some some product of the early 90s but not part of that so you know you've got like like they grew out of it the yeah. ska revival that less than Jake yeah. is part of, right? You've got uh, Foo Fighters, which you know we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, Everclear is like not <laughs> grunge, right? It's like kind of just like modern rock, but you know they grow yeah, out of that. Like so West Coast there is like these rock. these like bands that probably would not have been on our radar if the grunge early 90s thing had not happened but at this point the grunge thing isn't really happening anymore and these are the bands these are the the, these are the things that people are listening to sugar ray is way bigger than pearl jam at this point yeah well you feel the record you feel the record companies finally got a hold of everything you know because they talked about how like kurt cobain would reference a band and they'd go out and give like meat puppets a five album deal and then be screwed and lose all their money and like they would see like someone wear a t-shirt and they'd give that band a record label and by 1997 though you feel like the record companies have control you know the the wine was out of the bottle now they 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 put it all back in they have control of the bottle and they're selling it to you and you really see the difference between like you know 92 and 97 yeah it's the record company's last hurrah before uh, napster i want to highlight a couple songs um quickly um because i think that they're worth listening to and because the soundtrack is difficult i'm not sure if everybody got a chance to hear them all a lot um one of them is the master p track um, scream too, and uh, it's it's pretty interesting. Young homies banging through the signs on my block in the average age is 25. Young homies, as you can see, Ghostface plays a big role in the video. I tell you, it's kind of fun dipping back into it. <laughs> it's like just such a sound that it was like, oh yeah, I remember when people were rapping like that. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> These Hype Williams-esque videos, too. So yeah, so... Th- Whenever like you're rhyming Hennessy and Remember Me, you know <laughs> things are going real well. This is, this, this is clearly the single. And and I think, what, let me remind myself, does he say something at the beginning? Okay, maybe I'm th- oh yeah, because he he mentioned scream a couple times at the beginning. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> but I wanted to highlight that that there's there's these other songs that do that in funny ways too. So there's a John Spencer Blues Explosion song on this, and we talked about him in um, Baby Driver. Mm-hmm. Baby Driver, right? Because they're a big big band in Baby Driver. Um, they're not nearly as big a band as everybody else on this list by any stretch but there was a moment where it probably felt like maybe they might be so they get invited to do the scream that was a weird surprise and listen yeah. to how they be- <laughs> listen to how they begin their song now camel much, much too, too complex, complex. <laughs> yeah that's straight up sex ice cube too controversial scream too shit is blowing up all i gotta know 
Just crazy. Uh, I love them. This is such big soundtrack era shit because it's like, you know, they're getting, it's just like, yo, you want us to be on the Scream 2 soundtrack? Absolutely, we will be on your big hit soundtrack. We are going to talk about that movie in the song. So great. Um, uh, just great, great. Um, there's a song that, that and this is going to lead to a little uh, um, big opinion here really quick. I had a, a little revelation that I'm excited to to throw out because I think that uh, it'll, it'll make people furious. So there's a song on here that I wasn't looking at the titles of the song as I was listening to it. And I'm going to play it. This is a song by Sugar Ray. It's called Rivers, but I didn't know the title of it as they were playing it, as I was hearing it. Um, so I'm listening. Okay. Who does this sound like? Just listen. Vibes to it. Uh, you think? <laughs> it's remarkable. <laughs> Listen to this shit. Oh, it's getting into more more Weezer-y, yeah. <laughs> oh, whoa. Whoa. Wait, is that the same? Is that the same? Yeah, chord you're right. Damn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This is very weasery. Mark McGrath. What a garbage person Mark McGrath is. And it's is. called Rivers. The Whoa. song is called Rivers. Oh, shit. Which Rivers Cuomo is the singer of Weezer. I didn't know the name of the song. I'm listening to it. It comes on my headphones. I'm like, wait, I don't remember Weezer's on this soundtrack. Wait, Sugar Ray wrote a Weezer yeah, song. they wrote it and they called it Rivers. And I was like, this has to be. It's a good rip off. This is not a coincidence. And I look it up. It's not. It's an Ooh. ode. And that weird little harmony thing they just did? Whoa. That is so wild. As a side, a Weezer yeah, side really note, good. they're not on a lot of soundtracks, so we probably won't get there much. Yeah. Yeah, because they're fucking insufferable to listen to. <laughs> There's a really funny SNL skit where uh, where Matt Damon and... Uh, I don't oh, watch SNL, yeah. so I always forget the characters, the people's names on there. Is is, is the woman's name Leslie Jones? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Leslie Jones. That's yes. right. Yes. Leslie Jones. Okay, okay. She's very funny, but I know I don't watch Diner Live, so I never really know who Would anybody you is. Watch but I did all see of this the Ghostbusters skit. franchise because then you no, of course I don't watch that. So there's a there's a great SNL skit where Matt Damon and yes. her are arguing over Weezer's it's catalog. Great. And I've seen that because everybody sent it to me. Because I am definitely in the first two albums Weezer camp. 100%. Uh, they, they were one of my favorite bands at that time. I broke into the music section at Walmart on the night before Pinkerton, their second album, came out to try to find it in the stacks. Holy and it wasn't shit. out yet. That is yeah. dedication. Oh, I was all in. I'm, then, I'm with Joshua on this. The first two albums, and then they fall off a cliff and become the most embarrassing oh, band and ever. Then they're now, historically, they're one of the worst bands of all time. I yeah, mean, it's amazing. They've got two great albums and then the worst music ever made. <laughs> so now, here's what I have to say about that. Not only does this song sound like Weezer, this is a good Weezer song. <laughs> this is better than yeah. most Weezer songs. And 
And it's the best Sugar Ray <laughs> well, song ever made. So Sugar Ray starts out as like a Heather's kind of a like, hard, what is going on right now? <laughs> they were like a they were like a hard rock band. I remember when Sugar Ray first came out with whatever their hit was. There was a bit that like people would there would be people like you know what's crazy is if you listen to like their first record they used to be really cool. People would they say were they like used to be hardcore. The, they were like in the they L.A. Were. punk scene kind of. Yeah. Or punkish, whatever the surf rock. I don't know. I don't really know exactly. I just know that it wasn't unusual to be at a club and somebody be like, "Yeah, Sugar Ray's stupid," but their first album's pretty cool. And then they do this other thing to make a bunch of money. And then Mark McGrath becomes the host of what Entertainment Tonight, Frost the Frost Tips, the I just I just want to fly song. Remember that? <laughs> and is apparently very good at hosting it because he's been a host for a billion years and has become a very professional TV presence. After hearing this Rivers song. Uh, here's my here's my hot opinion. Mark McGrath is a is a mimic genius. This is a hot take. You want an Entertainment Tonight host? <laughs> I'll be your Entertainment Tonight host. Wow. You want a pop song? Here's your pop song. You want a Rivers <laughs> Cuomo song? Here's your Rivers Cuomo song. Who knew I was gonna get here? But Sugar Ray, man, I mean that dude's that dude can do anything. I guess I don't know. This song's better than most Weezer songs. <laughs> That is a good take. That is a that is, you have you have the evidence to su- to support that claim. Thank you, thank you. Like it's I don't know if it's as complimentary as you think it is that he can just he's really good at ripping off shit. And he's well, like you're like he's the greatest phony I've ever I've ever seen out of the nineties. Which is more than Gus. But Black he is do. talented at. You're right. You're, yeah. He's like, what do you guys want? Yeah, here it is. And then Matt's going to tell us about one of the songs on here in just a moment, but I'm going to to save you all one more rant because I could easily rant for um, way longer than anybody wants to hear about Foo Fighters and the fact that they are on this soundtrack and the band in general. But to save us all time, I decided that instead what I would do is... Um, <laughs> Go back to, um, and I would just borrow Heather's uh, Swayze rant for this one, and uh, and apply that to Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. This is already becoming infamous. I've gotten texts about this, Heather. I've been fielding complaints about this Swayze rant. Her Swayze rant is so Powerful. legendary and and so infuriating that I figured I could just use it. So this is this is my Foo Fighters rant. I wouldn't say that I dislike. Foo Fighters. I don't like hate the Foo Fighters. I just think he's Foo Fighters. junk. He's just so mediocre in everything. Foo Fighters he does. <laughs> all right, so that that's how I saved you all an hour of hearing me talk about the Foo Fighters. Makes me want to help myself, help my own reverend. There is a true giant on this soundtrack um, that at this time probably was my sister's favorite artist. She saw him live all over the place, Red Rocks, places like that. And that is Dave Matthews of the Dave Matthews Band. You were, you were, you were pretty excited when I was going to talk about Dave Matthews. I have, I have some really random I, random information because everyone knows bring it. who Dave Matthews is. They're a fun band to make fun of, um, easy to make fun of. And at this point in their career, I think they had just won a Grammy and they were huge and they were constantly on tour and white guys with dreadlocks love them. And they have this song, (laughs) Help Myself, which was recorded in 
the studio during the recording sessions of Before These Crowded Streets, which was such a big album that it ended Titanic's run. Titanic had like a 16-week run top of the charts. And this Dave Matthews, this is how big Dave Matthews were. They knocked him off and they became the number one selling album for Before These Crowded Streets. But a random song that didn't make that ended up on Scream soundtrack. And I really don't have that much to say about that song in the movie. It shows up appropriately used at, it's just at a college party and these college kids looks like kind of lame. Probably actually what they would have been listening to. Kind of lame party. It feels like exactly what they would be playing. The song itself to me is very unremarkable. It just sounds like a Dave Matthews song and he does his vocal stylings and the music (laughs) sounds the same. I think this song is also a canary in the coal mine of the death of the big soundtrack era. Because to me, you know, you know, I was coming with a big take (laughs) to me. It feels like (laughs) soundtracks are big, right? They're huge. And they're just putting popular bands on them, whether they're connected, you know, this isn't like the, the beautiful vibe of Nick cave, you know? Yeah. In the movie. This is just like, could be any random song from the late 90s by a big band. And it just feels like there's no connection at all. But I was trying to look for one so hard, I found a really fucked up dark connection. And it made me question Dave Matthews. Uh oh. Um, cooperation in being in this movie. Dave Matthews about to get canceled? No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's even, it's much sadder. Sad. When in 19, his, his, the first studio album they came out with in 1994, Under the Table and Dreaming, says <laughs> in memory of Anne on it. Okay. And Anne is his older sister, oh. who when that album came out, or right before it came out, was murdered by her husband. Holy who, shit. Who then committed suicide. Oh my God. And then Dave Matthews and his other sister took care of her kids. Holy and they got to be like, really, Uncle Dave, you're going to be in a murdery parent movie after what wow. happened to us? Your song is in a Scream movie, <laughs> which wow. seems a little too close to home because it's only two or three years yeah. after it huh. happened. My assumption is, obviously, Dave Matthews is big and famous and they're putting his movie in movies. It's like, it's just a horror movie. But when you think right. of that shit that he went through and then you think of the plot of Scream. Yeah, and that's wild. Parents dying and murders. It just seemed really weird. So I was like, maybe there is a connection here. But I feel like it's really random. Heather's face, I wish people could see it. She is like, what the yeah, fuck? Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. I think that, Matt, <laughs> you might have just caused me to feel empathy for yeah, I, Dave I, I definitely Matthews. Do. I, I will probably never talk shit about him again. That's that's awful and, and impressive. But why, isn't it a bad idea to be in this movie, though? You know, it, I, I his nieces and nephews are like, ugh, that's weird. It's a little... I, it's a little hard to understand. But I'm also... You know what, though, Matt? If he and his other sister were able to marshal the troops, pull everybody together, take care of the kids, figure it out, let's also live in a world. I cannot believe I'm about to say something fucking nice about Dave Matthews. Let's imagine a world where he was equally capable of sitting niece and nephew down, talking to the nibblings, saying to them, are you okay with me doing this? And Dibbling say, we are. That's, and so you don't know if that happened. Though. Wait, But also, wait until I tell you. No, of course I don't know if that <laughs> happened. I just found out <laughs> that his sister was You don't murdered. have evidence. Show me your evidence, Heather. Don't well, she just built this really beautiful beautiful story. You don't know if he was like, here's another check, kids. Shut up. I'm in the Scream 2 soundtrack. He's, he sat them down on a mid-century if couch. If you feel for Dave Matthews, Heather, <laughs> wait until you find out that 
Patrick Swayze died tragically young of uh, pancreatic, pancreatic cancer. cancer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm gonna posit that those nibblings have no fucking clue that that song is in this movie because most people, because most people, yeah. yes, most people have no clue yeah. that this song is in yeah. the movie. Dave yeah. Matthews it's, might not know, either. He probably doesn't know. It melts into the background. It's not a you know. Again, a precursor to Dawson's Creek. (laughs) But the reason I was saying it's the canary in the coal mine is because it feels like we're at this point where people are just throwing soundtracks together to try and sell soundtracks. And they're they're no longer (laughs) the music is no longer like influencing the movie or the movie is influencing the music. They almost feel like two different things. And then this is amazing. Yes. In 1997, in February of 1997, I found an article in the New York Times talking about how soundtracks are destroying the music industry. Oh, because they're so popular? Yes. And the the problem they talk about, I have to read you some of these quotes because it's really funny. Because we always think, you know, playlists come out, iPad, I, iPods come out. Um, that's why people no longer listen to albums. This article in February of 1997, when this soundtrack was out, is arguing that the reason people aren't into albums anymore um, is a bad sign for the music industry because they just want these one-hit wonders. These one-hit wonders can't sustain one or two albums and people aren't into music. Granted, you know, OK Computer came out from Radiohead in 1997. Right. So there's still good bands. And they were blaming soundtracks because, and I'm going to quote the article here, four of the top ten, and this hadn't happened before, best-selling albums on Billboard's charts were soundtracks from recent Hollywood films in February uh-huh. 1997. It was Avita which was, um, I think, Madonna, William Shakespeare's yeah, I think Romeo. And- I think, <laughs> I think you're right. It was, it was, it was someone like that. Um, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Space Jam. I think that was R. Kelly. Yeah. And The Preacher's Wife, which I realize yeah. is kind of the third part of the Whitney Houston trilogy. Yes. It is. Yes, yes it is. Yeah. Um, which I, I didn't realize. They were ranked second, third, fifth, and seventh in the best-selling albums. And... The person writing this is talking to record execs who are concerned that it's just creating all these one-hit wonder compilations and no one's into bands anymore. And it says, despite their success, some filmmakers believe that using soundtracks as marketing tools is subverting both the albums and the movies they were meant to support. Rather than enhancing a mood, soundtracks are becoming random compilations of songs, many of which do not even accompany the film. None of the songs on the soundtrack for the Eddie Murphy kind of comedy, The Nutty Professor, were in the movie. That is really funny to me. So they made the movie, The Nutty Professor. They had a soundtrack. They had nothing to do with each other at all. And then it's saying this is going to be the death of the industry as the media well, industry mean, consolidates into a handful of conglomerations. Yeah. Pessimists might fret that soundtracks may wind up being no more creative than the movie tie-in plastic figures that come with a Happy Meal. So funny that, to me. Wow. Considering that that we're like two years away at this point from Napster, it's like somebody two years before the volcano in Pompeii exploded complaining about the weather, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's great. You th- oh, yeah, you're right. The soundtrack is going to kill music. Get ready, buddy. <laughs> but, 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 but they're seeing the, like, the, the playlist coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're true. seeing the playlist coming and the play is kind of dismantling people's relationships with like bands and albums the way people used to have them. It's just becoming something different. But I thought that was funny. They even referenced the first scream 
in um, the article as well when they talk about people hustling to put soundtracks together and that company did Big Night and Scream and had success with them um, and how it was just this whole new game in the music industry that was going on from indie yeah. movies to big movies and um, really pessimistic about it. And when you see Dave Matthews on Scream 2, you're like, there is no real connection there. It's just it's the, it's just the managers of the that were most successful at getting their band on the soundtrack or their musician on the soundtrack. Exactly. And... And then the problem, I think Nora Ephron is in there complaining about it, where if Sony's making a movie, they only want Sony artists on the soundtrack, and it just becomes separate from the actual movie and just a way to sell stuff. But it's not just a matter of consolidation and conglomeration and mergers and acquisitions. It's also a matter of the very beginnings of trying to figure out how to do multi-channel, like cross-platform vectors for selling the content right and and in the early days of figuring out how to build those multi-platform machines of content the the first way was was the soundtrack because it was the first path outside of one uh medium or one channel into another and we saw this like all the way back in t2 remember during our summer special where uh they couldn't figure out how to promote t2 without spoiling that Mm -hmm. uh schwarzenegger becomes the good guy in the sequel and so the 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 uh solution the business solution to that problem the media business solution is to use the guns and roses track as the teaser as the way in to get people into caring about the movie before uh the movie comes out without while avoiding all of the spoilers I think it's this, I think it's this like adolescent, well, not even adolescence, like almost infancy of figuring out how to create these, these cross-platform, cross-channel franchises and content machines. Yeah. We just want to chill on our Gen X couch and listen to the bands and albums we love. Right, Heather? Yeah, man. Like we, we hang out, uh, in the high fidelity land, right? <laughs> I still feel that. No, but I, no, I know. I, I, <laughs> I wasn't I, I, joking. I, I do. I, I find myself being an old person lamenting things like that. Mama gripped onto the milkman's hand And then she finally gave birth Years go by, still I don't know Who shall inherit this earth Alright, are either of these the perfect movie soundtrack? Or is one better than the other? What what you can answer for both, you can answer for either or. What do you think? Matt? I would say no, because they're not consistent enough at all. But I right. forgot what episode we were talking about the perfect movie song, and I think the Nick Cave one deserves a shout out for yeah. Oh, yeah. I think we were talking about okay. um Fight the Power and um uh, yeah. do the right thing mm-hmm. yeah it was our summer special and then there was another one yeah. that matched and once in a while you just get a perfect movie track not a perfect movie soundtrack uh-huh. and i think maybe that's a new category we'll give yeah, it the perfect yeah. movie yeah. track but not the whole soundtrack man i wish i'd done better research on that song because that's a good better answer. research <laughs> you were like i watched every commentary i was like damn i just read wikipedia yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i bet there's some Ugh. really fucking obvious thing that i just missed and it's there i'm gonna find it when we're done recording. we'll put it in a po- we can put it in a post like, yeah all right cool. i agree perfect movie track maybe we need to start thinking about that one a little bit more because i definitely think mm. that applies here for for sure mm. And one of the cool things about this version of Perfect Movie Track, as opposed to, say, I Will Always Love You or Titanic, is uh, 
that they're they're able to give it multiple roles to play in the universe mm. of the films. Um, it's not mm-hmm. always doing the same thing, and that's not just because a it's a franchise, and so there are lots of different moments where the song can show up, even within one or two movies at a time. It's 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 got different emotional beats to it. It's doing different kinds of work. Um, so yeah, I like I like I like your style, Matt. It's the perfect movie uh, track, it's and kind all of, fun of the to rest. Say that. It is kind of fun to say <laughs> that. Um, and all of the rest of the the music that we get is like, it's fine. It's not interfering with how fun. Oh wow, you just you just called Gus Black fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because all the big important scenes have a uh, score to them. You know, yeah, right. yeah, because there's a horror movie, so they really rely on score. Then the it's the are, so. What movie. do you think, Joe? Are we, are we wrong in our estimation? No, I agree. Are we I don't get killed by the school by the scream community. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. No, I, I don't think. <laughs> no, I don't think that. I think that your assessment is right on. I agree with it. I think that Red Right Hand is so superior to everything else that's on those uh, soundtracks, and I and. I don't think that they're good soundtracks. I think that they um, do that punctuating yes. thing that I referred to yes. earlier mm-hmm. in the scenes. And I think that most people would agree with that. I think that there's a, a big soft spot for um, Lucky Day in Hell, which introduces Sydney back in part two and the Collective Soul song that uh, closes her out at the end. I know that the fan base is really love oh, those okay. two songs. Hmm. Um, but even those songs are kind of only... Um, the parts that 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 play against Sydney in those moments are like the better pieces of those songs. Like they're not consistent songs all the way through anyway. Um, so it's interesting. So they really are like, you know, curated to those mm-hmm. scenes in those moments. Um, and I will say about Red Right Hand, I firmly believe that Red Right Hand influenced the tone of two and three. I think they actually, because of how successful it was in the first, I think it helps to establish something about the tone and the mood of part two and then part three subsequently. Um, that, you know, not that it necessarily changed the way those movies were written, but I think it actually um, was present enough in Wes Craven's head to allow him to sort of uh, choreograph and shoot certain scenes and have them edited to sort of accommodate that mm-hmm. song in the future films. Um, and and I think that you know the evidence is there, especially because there was a re-recording of it for mm-hmm. three. So they wouldn't have gone through that trouble to sort of screamify <laughs> Red Right Hand in the way that it does. And that you know has now become sort of the definitive version that is used elsewhere, if that, right? If so, that's indeed the version um, that's so used yeah. in Peaky Blinders. I believe it is. I think you're right about that. And it was on the X-Files. I mean, it's been used yeah. in a lot of stuff post-Scream. It's been a lot All of TV thanks. shows, a lot of other movies. All thanks to Dumb and it. Dumber. Yeah. <laughs> that is my favorite thing I learned tonight. <laughs> you pointed that out. That's <laughs> Let's do one more plug for the book here, Joe. I mean, I'll plug it and say that people should read it. Uh, people oh, should, you. you know, heck, I, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether you read it or not. I'm sure Joe cares. I think you should buy it. That's that's my concern. Is I think you should purchase it. I, I agree. <laughs> if you, once you once you have it sitting on the on your coffee table, you should also read it. It's fun. It's heavy at times. Serious at times. Really funny at times. 
Yeah, Joe's Does writing it, is beautiful. But so, Joe, thank you. Uh, give it a pitch. Yeah, uh, it came from the closet. Queer reflections on horror on feminist press. Um, and Josh said a really nice thing about it uh, when I shared him. I shared the cover art with him a few months ago. Uh, you know, he said this is kind of brilliant. You're kind of forcing people to own the physical copy because of the cover and because there's interior art by an amazing artist named uh, Bishak Sam who basically made collages of key scenes from all the uh essays in each section there are five sections so we have these like graphic novel images with the titles of the different sections um and you know we just have this this great fusion of queer art with queer text and um so i do hope that people will uh get the physical copy because i think it's a really special thing to have but i'm also cool if you want to get the kindle version <laughs> and excitingly we have an audiobook version are you serious out. that is yeah uh, yeah uh, cool. it just it's being it's being recorded as we speak it is a multi-narrator um every voice actor is part of the queer community lgbtqia and um yeah I was, awesome. I was pretty stoked that's when so i found awesome. out that we're getting an audio version that's of awesome. it. Really cool. so you can buy the physical copy and then you can have it narrated <laughs> to you which is which is very mm-hmm. cinematic love it yeah thank you thank you for, thanks thank for you coming for on guys i really feel very very honored to be yeah. here oh we're you. so glad you were willing to come yeah this was a great conversation i love this podcast <laughs> thank you And our next episode is something very special. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing our own sound effects. Are you I like scared? That. You very scared. <laughs> um... Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do it. We're gonna do another special. The I, I every cover really of Monster Mash this. top ten. <laughs> I think I think uh, people really liked the summer one, so we're gonna do a Halloween one. But in the spirit of Halloween, we're not gonna tell you what we're gonna be dressed as. You'll have to find and, out. Uh, <laughs> you should be a little more specific about what you mean as dressed as. Go for it. Um, you don't know what the podcast is going to be dressed as, I guess we can say. Yeah, you should say that. The podcast yeah. is going to put on a costume, sort of. <laughs> so we're going to do a we're going to do a Halloween episode, a special episode, a little bit different. Um all I can tell you is that it's is it going to be a bit of a different kind of episode, but you'll have to see just like going to the Halloween party to find out what everybody's dressed as, you're going to have to listen to find out what this podcast mm-hmm. is. We have is. figured out a costume for the show that we really like and we hope that you will like it too (laughs) (laughs) yes that's well said that's true and you know hey it probably won't be too scary for you it might make you feel old so if that's something that scares you we're gonna go this you know, the, the sexy costume route. That's a hit. Oh yeah. Oh for yes. Sure. Like sexy, sexy veterinarian. The sexy podcast. Sexy veterinarian. Yes. Sexy IKEA workers. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> sexy IKEA worker is like anything. you just cut up one of those blue bags and make it into like. I think it's obviously oh, sexy yes. adjunct. <laughs> oh, sexy adjunct. There's no such thing. I mean, I just live my life like that. So, <laughs> okay. Other than Matt, there's no such thing. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. Check out the show notes for links to our Twitter and our Instagram and to a Spotify playlist of all the songs featured in this episode. We will see you in two weeks with our Halloween special. From Matt and Heather, this is Joshua, and thanks for listening.